And so make sure you do that so we can make sure if you came to all the series, we can get you a free recording of everything. We don't want a bunch of people missing on Saturday afternoon when the house was packed. All right, come back in. I got to let you guys out in 25 minutes. So let's come back in. I do. It has a flake, though. Thank you. I'm trying to, you know, drink around it. Yeah. No, I'm good. But thank you. She just went to get it. All right, are we ready? Maybe. I'm going to do my best to get you out of here in 25 minutes. But I don't promise. But I'll do my best. Let's thank you. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, Lord, be with us during this next session. In your precious name we pray. Amen. The last presentation raises a grave question. No pun intended. If the wicked are not being tormented right now, if they're going to be destroyed in the end of time, then where on earth are they right now? Well, let's look at what the Bible actually has to say on the subject of death. In John 11, this is referring to Lazarus when he was sick. It says, then he said, after he said, then he said, this he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen what? He had been sick and now he's what? Oh, he's fallen asleep. Good. Good, because when people are sick, what do they need? They need rest. But notice, it says, I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Well, don't do that when people are sick. They need to rest. The disciples that said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Don't bother him. Now, Jesus had not spoken of literal sleep. It says he had spoken of what? Death. But they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is what? Dead. There is a sleep. No. I want to make sure this is clear. There is a death that Jesus said was what? Sleep. Sleep. He referred to it as a sleep. But then we get to Luke 8. And it says, when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now, when they were all weeping and lamenting, he said, stop weeping for she has what? Not died, but is what? Asleep. Now, stretch your neurons with me for a moment. In, in Luke or sorry, John 11, he said he is what? Sleeping, which meant he was dead. But here he says, she's not dead. 
She's just what? Asleep. Now, had she died? Yes. But had she died? Had she died according to Jesus? See, there's something called sleep that Jesus referred to as sleep that we call what? Death. But there's something else that Jesus says is death, not what? Sleep. Did you see that? What Jesus is showing to us is that there's two uses of the word what? Death. One is just a what? Asleep. The other is, we'll get to it. But the point is, Lazarus had experienced this. Is that true? What he's saying to the other couple is, don't weep. She's not experienced this. She's experienced this. Can you see that in these two passages? There are two ways to use the word what? Death. Let's look at that first use and why Jesus used it that way. In 1 Kings 2, verse 10, 1143 and 1421, when Jesus was growing up, what Bible did he use? Did he break open the book of Romans and study that? No, the only Bible that existed, it was the Old Testament. Now, he could have used the Septuagint, that's right. But notice it says, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Does the Old Testament refer to David dying and refer to it as a sleep? Does it? You want to get out of here in 25 minutes? Does it? Good. It says, And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Then it says, Jeroboam reigned 22 years, and then he slept with his fathers. In Psalms 13, 3, David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of what? Death. In Job 3, look in your grace section. It says, Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Why the breast that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. Interesting. I would have been at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. We have to balance all of this. With Ecclesiastes. Does the Bible refer to death as a sleep? Have we seen that? But Ecclesiastes 12 comes in and says. The dust will return to the earth. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. As it was. And it says. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Before we go any further, just based on Ecclesiastes 12, what happens to your spirit when you die? It goes back to God. It's interesting, this doesn't make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. When any person dies, see, medieval Christianity teaches that when you die, your spirit of the good people, that goes to who? God, but the spirit of the wicked, it goes down to where? Hell to be what? Tormented for how long? Forever and ever and ever. We saw the Bible doesn't teach that this afternoon. The Bible actually teaches that when you die, whether you're righteous or wicked, your spirit goes back to who? To God who gave it. Remember, the wicked are being reserved. That's the word that was used for the day of judgment to be tormented. 
It says the spirit returns to God who gave it. Let's look at this dynamic here in Ecclesiastes 12, talking about dust returning to the earth and the spirit returning to God. In Genesis 2, 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man out of the what? Without God, the fact is we're all just a bunch of what? Dirt, that's right. Maybe even mud. But it says, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Ecclesiastes 3 says the fate of the sons of men and the fate of the beasts, the animals, is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they have all had the same breath. There's no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the what? Dust and all return. What does it say? When you die, what happens to your body? goes back to dust notice what it says in psalms 104 29 you hide your face they are dismayed you take away their what spirit and they expire what happens to the body goes back to dust what happens to the spirit goes back to god james 2 26 says for just as the body without the spirit is what dead what happens to that body It rots. What happens to the spirit? Goes back to God. Now, how are we to understand the Bible's use of spirit? I want you to take out your insert with me. We're not going to go through this this afternoon. I've given you this as a gift. This is a complete list of how the Bible uses the word spirit every time. It's an example of all the uses that the Bible executes by its use of the word spirit. You can read this later. I'm going to sum up just two of them for you. There's two ways the Bible uses the word spirit primarily. The first one is in Job 27.3. It says, all the while my breath is in me, the Spirit of God is in my what? Remember, this was back in a agricultural age, before the scientific age, before the enlightenment, before the industrial age. When they thought of spirit, it's interesting. Look in the, the gray section there. Do you see the word ruach? This is the Hebrew word for spirit. It's translated into spirit 232 times. But how many, what's it translated into 92 times? Wind. What's it translated into 27 times? Breath. Did God breathe into that sculpture there in Eden? He became a living being. The Israelites saw that breath as God breathing into man his what? His spirit. He said the spirit of God is in my what? My nostrils. But I want to be very careful. Although that is one use of the word spirit in the Bible. It's synonymous with breath. Got it? We need to be careful not to belittle the spirit by saying it's only your breath. Are you hearing me? I mean, after all, can you go out to a nice Italian restaurant and walk away with garlic spirit? Need a spirit mint? Breath mint? Or or is the spirit something much more than your breath? It's also something much more than your breath. We see this usage used in, in 
Job 17.1, same book. Job said, my spirit is what? Was he having a hard time breathing? My breath is broken? No. When we say someone has a broken spirit, what are we talking about? Take this little insert with me. Do you see in the middle of the second column on the first page? There's a paragraph called our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection. Do you see that? This is a commentary on some of these verses. Look two sentences down. It says the spirit, the what? Character of man is returned to God there to be what? Preserved. Does the word spirit, is it only used in regards to breath? Can it, regard, can it also indicate our personality or that thing inside of us that becomes hurt at times or broken, our identity? Can, that, can, can it refer to that as well? Yes, and when we die, what happens with all of that? Where does it go? It goes back to God who what? The greatest illustration I can give you of this is if, let's say you got in an accident... And I know they can't do this yet, but let's say we live years in the future and they can pull this off. You got in an accident that was so bad, you required not just a heart transplant or a leg transplant or a brain transplant. You required an entire body transplant. Got it? They replaced everything that was yours one thing at a time until you were totally revamped or what do they call it? Refurbished. Okay, well, not necessarily restored because they didn't use new parts. They're transplants, got it? And so you wake up and you look. You look at your hands and you think, I don't remember that scar. Boy, my thumbs are fat. How did that happen? You pick up, you look down, and man, your feet are huge. I don't remember that either. And they don't, they don't match. Yeah, no, I meant one bigger than the other, not two rights. But you pick up a mirror and you look into it, and you don't, you've never seen that face in the mirror before. Got it? And where did your hair go? Got it? I mean, you'd think if they were doing everything else, they could do that too. They left that off. It was extra. Insurance wouldn't cover it. It was cosmetic. (laughs) Let me ask you. Even though the body's different, would you still be the same person on the inside? One is the body that goes to the dust. The other is your what? It's your spirit. Are you with me? Your spirit. Where does that go when we die? To God. And however you define that spirit, what I would like us to to define this afternoon is in what state does it go? In Luke 23, Jesus taught us this because even on the cross, what was his dying word? Father, into your hands I commit my what? Spirit. Can we see that? But notice what Psalms 146 says. His spirit departs. 
He returns to the earth. That's his body. In that very day, what does the Bible say? When the spirit departs, what happens to your thoughts? So, so far, in what state would your spirit be going back to God who gave it? Awake and thinking and alert? It would be what? Asleep. In Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6, it says, The living know that they will die, but the dead do not know how much? Anything. How much do they know? They sleep like I do. Someone else a sound sleeper in the room? When you are asleep, you are dead to the world. Isn't that what they say? Yeah, when you're sleeping, you have no clue what's going on around you. It says, indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. Psalm 6, 5, this may come as a shock to some, but notice it says, no one talking to God, no one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from the what? Psalms one fifteen seventeen said, the dead do not praise the Lord. What do we usually picture them doing up there? Hear me, we've got this idea that when a person dies, their spirit, the spirit of the good guys, they go up to heaven with little harps and they praise God all the time. And the bad guys, their spirit goes down to hell where it's being burned. And they're cursing God all the time. But we learned that the first half of that equation was not biblical this afternoon. I would like to suggest to you the second half of that equation is also not biblical. That when a person dies, whether they're righteous or wicked, their spirit, yes, goes back to God. But in what state does it go? Awake and alert, knowing the things that are going on around, praising God? What is it doing? It's asleep. In John 20, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me. Speaking to who? Mary at the tomb. For I have not yet returned to my what? This is amazing. What did he commend into the Father's hands when he died? His spirit. Did his spirit go there? But when he resurrected, did he have any memory of having been there the past three days? Why? Because what was his spirit doing? It was sleeping. It was as if he himself had not been there yet. Are you with me? In Acts 13.36, notice what it says, that David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he what? Fell asleep. So what happened to him? He died. Look at Acts 2.34. David did not ascend to what? To heaven. Now don't get me wrong. Did David's spirit go there? But is David awake right now? No. We're all asleep. They're all sleeping. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. When Jesus died, what happened to his spirit? It went to the Father. Awake or asleep? When Jesus was resurrected, that spirit was put back into a body and Jesus was awake now, brought back to life. Got it? 
How many would like that to happen for you when you die? The promise is that God's going to do that for all of us who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He's going to bring us with Jesus through that experience. Jesus did not go through that alone. It says, and we who are alive and we remain until the coming of the Lord, we won't precede those who have fallen asleep. Underline that statement. We will not precede those who have what? If the common way of understanding death among Christian churches, by the way, it's being questioned today. Do you realize that? There's a new book that just came out by a Presbyterian. There's also a new book that just came out by an Anglican. Both of them have theologians in those churches that are reading these verses and saying, wait a second, we've got it wrong. Isn't that amazing? Beautiful books, great books. I'm excited to see other theologians of other other faiths catching on and going back and seeing what the Bible actually teaches on these subjects. This thing that we just underlined will not precede those who have fallen asleep. If the common way of understanding death that Christians do today is correct, would it make sense to say that those would it be make sense to clarify and say, listen, now, now we're not going to get there before them. Why would you need to? Why would you need to? Because they're already what? There, according to common belief. The mere fact that Paul says, listen, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Means they're not where there they are. Their spirits there. Is that true? But their spirit is what? Sleeping. And we who are alive and don't sleep, will we get there before they do? No. It says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise. What does it say? First. They're going to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Today in Christianity, you never hear the resurrection being preached. Nobody preaches it because what sense, what do you need a resurrection for if you're already there? The point is, it's your spirit that's there. And in what state is it? Asleep. And we're all waiting the hope of the what? Resurrection when those who are alive will be caught up and those who are asleep will be what? Woken up and we will all be caught up together. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? It's worthless. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have what? They've perished. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made. What does it say? Alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. Look at your gray section. Remember how we just read that David had not ascended into heaven? He had not ascended into heaven consciously. His spirit's there asleep. Notice what Psalm 17 says. As for me, what does David say? As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. In righteousness, I will be satisfied in your likeness when I die. When I wake, he knew that when he died, he was going to sleep the sleep of what death. But he had the hope of one day being what 
awoken, resurrected, then he would see the face of the Lord. You know, in all practicality, if you understand this, it really makes no difference for those that have passed on before us. We think that they've died and gone to heaven, many of us. But in their timing, it's actually the same thing because they died and in the blink of an eye, the next thing they'll be conscious of, what's the next thing they'll see? Jesus. And so to them, it is almost what? Instant. Got it? For them, they did die and go to heaven. Got it? But you and I who are still living know that they're not there awake. They're there sleeping. They'll see his face when they wake up. A friend of mine was burying his grandfather. And I was privileged to be there. And he was so worried about his grandfather. His grandfather said, don't worry for me, worry for you. He said, I'm going to close my eyes. He said, I'm going to go now. But I'll see you in just a minute. That's what his perspective was. He was going to sleep the sleep of death. Would he know anything that's transpiring? The next thought he had would be not in that hospital bed, but being brought forth from the grave with his family again. No time had skipped or elapsed in his thinking. He had skipped time. Do you see how it goes? We're the ones who live through time, not the dead. They are being reserved, some for everlasting glory and others for judgment. Wow, what a hope, amen? John 11, Jesus said, when he came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Who is this? Lazarus. Martha, therefore, when she heard Jesus coming, she went out to meet him. Martha said, then said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And what does Martha say? I know he will rise again in the what? Resurrection on the what? Oh, interesting. When was she expecting to see her brother again? In the resurrection on the last day. Do you see how she believed what we're talking about this afternoon? She saw it. But notice what Jesus said to her. I love Jesus. He comes, he comes at her from an angle she did not expect. He says to her, I am the resurrection. And the life. He who believes in me will live. Watch this. He will live even if he what? Dies. Because everyone who lives and believes in me will never what? Oh, interesting. Did you see how he just used both of them? He said, you, if he believes in me, even if he dies, he will what? He'll be woken up because he who believes in me will never what die. The only way to understand this passage is to see that Jesus saw two kinds of death. Can you see that there? Lazarus was not dead. He was sleeping. One type of death. That little girl was not dead. She was just what? Sleeping. She said that you and I, even if we die, if we have believed, we'll live again. Because he who believes truly never what? Dies. You may take a nap between here and there. But you will never die. Praise God. Amen.
Do you believe this? He asked. Revelation 20. Remember we talked about this in the last presentation. I saw a great white throne, the day of judgment, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and the heavens fled away. No place was found for them. I hope that this will make more sense to you now. It says, I saw the dead. The small and the great standing before the throne. The sea gave up the dead which were in them. Death and the grave gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each one according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the... Oh, what's that word? Ooh, does the Bible actually even go so far as to say there's a first and a... Second, interesting, isn't it so far? The second death. This is the second death, the lake of fire. What is the second death according to the scriptures? We put a question mark. What is it according to this verse? Lake of fire. What we talked about. The literal flames of last presentation. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will what? He will know though he dies, he will. Do you remember what he says? He will live for he who believes in me will never die. Amen. Do you see how it works? What a hope. What a promise. Jesus said she hasn't died. She's just sleeping. Wow. John five, Jesus said, do not marvel at this. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and they will what? Come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of what? Those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Condemnation. Do you see it? Daniel taught this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. David said in Psalm 71, look in your grace section. You who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the what? I believe with all my heart that Jesus is coming back. Amen. Amen. I believe he's coming back soon. But if that doesn't take place in my lifetime, I have the hope that if if I fall asleep like the fathers that have gone before me, that he will remember me and bring me back up from the depths of the earth, that he will hold my spirit, though it sleepeth, he will hold my spirit in reserve until that great and glorious day where we're all caught up to be with him forever. Amen. Malachi 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. Remember, we read this. Philippians 1.23. Notice what it says. Paul said, I am what? Hard pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart. And what does it say? Be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for. Now, according to Paul, this sounds like if you want to read into it, it sounds like that Paul is saying when he dies, he's going to immediately consciously go where? To heaven. But notice what Paul had said in other places. Second Timothy four. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in the future. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award me when I die. On that day and not only only me, but all those who love his what he understood the delicate balance that when he died, he would be await to the second coming 
until he saw the face of his Lord. Did he understand that? But in Philippians, he also understood the reality that to his perception, when he died, the next moment that he would be conscious of, he would be with who? With the Lord. And that's what it is for all of us. We lament. And I've had people say, Herb, do you mean my loved ones aren't in heaven right now? Well, their spirit is. It's sleeping. Well, what do you mean it's sleeping? Why am I? Understand this. Your loved ones who have passed away will not know that all of this time has transpired while they were gone. The very next conscious thought they will have is that they died and they are immediately with who? Jesus. When you and I die, time may continue. But for us, what is the very next second going to be? Being with Jesus. Are you with me? Second Corinthians 5.8. Paul uses other language. It says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with who? The Lord. This also sounds like Paul believed that when you died, you went where? Consciously. To heaven. But notice what he says. Notice what he means by this when we look at the use of this language in other places. 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all what? Did Paul believe in sleeping? Yes. Sleeping unto when? According to 1 Corinthians 15 previously. The resurrection. It says, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. How? We will be changed for this perishable must put on imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. Will we get a new body? Yes. And when we get that new body, will we be at home with the Lord? Yes. We will be divested of this one. Get that one and be with God. When do we get that new body? But when this perishable is put on imperishable and this mortality will have put on immortality, then it will come up the saying that is written, Oh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When did Paul see us getting a new body and being with the Lord? At the resurrection. Look at Luke 23.43. Jesus said to him. Truly I say unto you. This is when he was dying. Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Some people say see that proves. Jesus believed that he was going to die. And immediately go where? To heaven. Consciously. You'll be with me today where? Where? Paradise. Paradise. See, Herb, Jesus believed it. I want you to read Acts 19.12 with me. It says that from his body there were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them. I didn't know that Paul went around healing sick handkerchiefs and aprons. What's missing in that sentence? A comma. Where should the comma be? Talk to me. Where should the comma be? He brought unto the sick, comma. The sick is a noun, not an adjective. He brought unto the sick, comma. 
handkerchiefs and aprons and the diseases departed from them. Understand the punctuation of the translation is not inspired. The Bible is. Amen. The punctuation in Acts 19 is correct or wrong. It's wrong. Could the punctuation be off in Luke 23? What happens if you take that comma and put it after today rather than before it? Then what you have is Jesus saying, truly, I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in what? He was saying it to him today. He wasn't saying it was going to happen today. Do you hear the difference? Acts 27, 37 The greatest proof I have of that is Jesus himself said when he was resurrected, I have not yet what? Ascended to my father. You can't make it contradict. You have to make it harmonize. And Acts 27, 37, I want to look at one more thing that comes up with this subject. It says there were in all the ship 203 score and 16 what? Souls. Now, there are two uses of the word soul in the Bible. Sometimes the Bible refers to the soul as what man is. Got it? It's his whole person. He's a soul. We use that too. We say, oh, that dear soul. Don't we do that? And how many souls were there? Good. But notice in Genesis 2, 7, well, you see the same thing. Jehovah had formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a what? Living soul. So the word soul is used referring to the whole person. Everyone with me? But the Bible also uses it as not what man is, but something which man possesses. I'll show it to you. In Romans 2, verse 9, it says, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul who does evil. Is that what it says? It says, soul of man who does evil. Is this what man is or something man has? Do you see it here? Grammatically, am I asking you to think too hard? Is it what man is or what man has? According to Romans 2, what man is or what man has? Has. It's the soul of man, not himself. It's something that's his. Whether you define the word soul as something which man possesses or whether you define soul as that which man is, regardless of how you define it, notice what the Bible does not teach about the word soul. It says, behold, all souls are whose? The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins will what? Die. Does the Bible teach that the soul is immortal and will live on forever and ever and ever? What happens to the soul? It dies. And where did we learn it died in the previous presentation? Are you with me? Are you looking? That is the second what? Oh, remember, Jesus said, don't... Fear him who can destroy just the body, but cannot destroy the soul. That's this death. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in where? In the lake of fire in hell. Do you remember that? Why is this significant? Why is this even important? You want to know how I became a Christian? Doesn't matter. You're going to hear it anyway. (laughs) Just kidding. Yeah. It's just an illusion. 
I grew up in a religious home. And I was taught at a very young age that I had an immortal soul. And I was taught that God had made a way for me to be in heaven. But I needed to convince him to let me be there. To convince God to let me go to heaven and spend that immortality or else I would go to where and spend that immortality. And I wasn't the only one taught that because you can see it everywhere today. Have you seen the bumper stickers? Eternity. Smoking or non-smoking. Have you seen those? They're out there. In my whole early religious life, understand, my picture of God was that I naturally had what? Immortality. And I just needed to convince him to let me spend it in the happy place rather than where I was headed. That I was born destined for, but he would let me into this if I did something. And different groups would tell me what I had to do differently. Some people would say, just accept him. Some people would say, well, you need to do this and do this and do this and do this. You know what the problem really was? It wasn't what they were saying I needed to do to convince him to let me into heaven. Do you know what the problem was? The whole system was messed up. From the very beginning. Because no matter what I did, whether I did the right thing or the wrong things, everything that I was doing for was for which principle? A or B? A. Just let me get my carcass into the kingdom. That's all I care about. Please, God, I don't want to spend immortality here. The whole system was bankrupt. You know what? The Bible doesn't even teach all of this garbage. It scares me to death what we're doing to kids. I was in Louisiana recently doing a series of meetings around Halloween. Have you seen what they do at Halloween time with this whole concept? They don't make haunted houses. And I can talk about them. I can talk about the Baptists, can I? I'm from the South. I mean, yeah, there's more Baptists than there are people in the South. I mean, really? But they don't put on haunted houses. And I have a lot of good friends that are Baptists. And, and we joke back and forth. They've got a good sense of humor. I hope I can. They don't put on haunted houses. They do a representation of Hell. And they take kids through it for Halloween. And they have kids on the other side signing up to accept Jesus as their Savior in droves. It works. There's all kinds of little kids getting into the kingdom. It's a no-brainer. This system, editor of the New York Times says, you know, heaven doesn't seem very interesting when I think about it. He's just being honest. He says, but after all, it doesn't need to be interesting because it just needs to be better than what? Yeah. Got it? Look at the options. It just has to be something other than that. 
I look at that and I say, we're not winning people by the revelation of God's love. We're not changing their hearts from being about them to being about God. We're just scaring the hell out of them. That's all we're doing. And we're making them more self-centered than they were. According to Jesus, he says, they're twice the sons of hell than when you found them. Because they may be trying to serve God now, but they're trapped inside of a principle A where they're just trying their whole life to convince God to save their skin. Do you know what the Bible really teaches? you know what the gospel really is? The gospel is this. In Genesis 2.17, the gospel does not teach that your soul is immortal to begin with. We've learned that. But notice what it teaches. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. Do you know what that means? That when Adam and Eve sinned, the day they sinned, what should have happened to them? They should have died. Why didn't they? Because Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus stepped in and said, let the race live. Let it fall on me. I'll die. Let them have another chance. How many are thankful for that? But you and I, we've sinned too, not just Adam and Eve. Isn't that true? Which means you and I are not alive because we're immortal. You and I have sinned and we should beware. We should all be dead. And the only reason why you're even breathing right now, whether you accept Jesus as your Savior or not, whether you're a heathen or a saint, the only reason you're breathing right now is because God has encircled this globe with an atmosphere of abounding grace, which is as real as the air we breathe. He is having grace on us all. We're not naturally immortal trying to convince us to let us into heaven. We should already be what? Dead. And he has given to everybody what? Life. Look at what the scriptures teach on this. It says in uh, Romans 5.18. Then as one man's trespass led to, what does it say? Condemnation for how many? All men. Do you remember what God said when they sinned? Take them away from the tree of life. They must not be allowed to live for how long? Forever. At that point, humanity lost its immortality. Remember, we've covered this today. Humanity lost its immortality. Hear me. Can you be born with that which your parents did not possess? No. If Adam and Eve didn't have immortality, if they had lost it, Can they pass that on to their race? No. That means you and I are born how? Mortal. Check this thought out. Being mortal, like the Bible states, even if you could live a perfect life and never sin, even by so much as a thought. How many think that'd be cool if you could have pulled that off? Even if you could go from birth to the grave and never have even sinned once, do you know what the facts are? You'd still die because you were born mortal. No matter how righteous you think you are, by yourself you will die. Our only hope is not to be perfect. Our only hope is to accept by faith the one who is immortal. Amen? Amen. And allow his immortality to cause us to live forever.
Do you see what's happening here? We're beginning to see a different gospel. See, we should be what? Dead. But notice, First John. The one who believes... Oh, I'm going to test you. I was supposed to let you out a half an hour ago. But I'm going to test you and then I'll let you go. The one who believes in the Son of God has, has this testimony in himself. The one who believes... Does, the one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his son. So far, there's three things I want you to see here. Number one, there are believers. If you agree, say yes. There are unbelievers. If you agree, say yes. And there's a testimony. If you agree, say yes. Three things. What is the difference between a believer or an unbeliever? According to this verse. Believers, what do they do? That's why they're called believers. It's a no-brainer. It's not a trick question. Unbelievers, what do they not do? That's why they're called unbelievers. What are they believing or not believing? The testimony. So in the chronology of events, hear me. In the chronology of events, what has to happen first? What happens first? The giving of the testimony or the belief of the individual? Which happens first? The giving of the testimony. Because how the person responds to the testimony determines whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. Is everyone with me? So you agree that the testimony comes to the person before they believe. Do you agree with me? Would you like to know what that testimony is? Before a person believes, God gives them this word. And the testimony is this, that even though you haven't believed yet, God has given you eternal what? Life. And this life is in his son. God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten Son. Romans 5.18 says, As one man, through one man's offense, judgment came to all. Did we all lose our immortality through his offense? Did we, are we all born mortal? Notice what it says, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act. Who was that one man? The free gift came to how many? To how many? How many? All resulting in acquittal and what? Life. How many have been acquitted? All. How many are breathing and have life right now? All of us. We're all breathing. What if we're not, what if we haven't believed yet? Are we still breathing? Are we still alive? Have we sinned? Where should we be? Oh, and hear me. We're alive because God has given us the gift of His Son. We're not alive because you're naturally immortal and now you need to convince God to let you spend it in heaven. You should be dead. Do you understand that? And before you did any convincing of God, he was already convinced that you should live. Do you hear me? And he gave the world, every man, woman and child and a a gift of an acquittal and the gift of life. And he said, if you believe in me, if you accept this gift, remember, it's a gift. The nature of a gift means it must be what? It must be received. Can you throw the gift away? 
Has God given the gift of acquittal to every person? But can you throw the gift away? You must choose to what? Accept the gift because he doesn't want to violate your freedom, your will. But if you choose to accept it, how long will this life last? See, people say, and they like to argue theology with me, and I hate arguing theology. I actually hate arguing, period. But they say, well, no, no, Herb. God has given us temporal life, temporary life. He hasn't given us eternal life. Well, First John 5, 9 didn't say, or 5, yeah, 9 and 10 didn't say temporal life, did it? Number one. Number two, who cares whether it's temporal or eternal? What God has given us is life when we should be what? You determine whether that life is temporary or everlasting. Do you hear me? You decide whether the life he's given you will only be for 80 plus years or whether it will be throughout eternity. You determine what the life he lived, he's given you, how long it lasts. Because it's a gift. Which means, what does this mean? What does this mean? It's good news. It's not good advice. Good advice is what the other gospel was, isn't it? Spend the rest of your days trying to convince him to let you into heaven. This is good news. You don't need to convince God. The reason you're breathing is because he's already convinced. Do you see that? And when you see all that God has given you already, even before you believed, what does that motivate you to do? Motivates you to believe, it motivates you to repent, it motivates you to confess, and it motivates you. I have gratitude and appreciation to say this God is so good. I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to start living for Him. And it transfers you from principle A to principle B. Do you see it? You're a changed person. Self-preservation hasn't taken place. Conversion has. What a, what a, what a gospel, amen? The immortality of the soul has not been invented by the devil so that we won't understand what happens when we die. The immortality of the soul has been invented by the devil so that we become trapped in option A, self-centered, only worrying whether we spend that immortality in a happy place. Do you see that? But when you start to see the gospel that you're naturally mortal, even more than that, you should be dead. But God has given you everything as a gift. All of a sudden you begin to appreciate how good he is. And you don't care about you anymore. The only thing that matters is him. There's one more thing I want to share with you. And you know what? I'm going to do it. I know you've been sitting for a while and some of you won't come back tomorrow. And that's fine because you can wreck your finances and still be in the kingdom. Amen. I'm not worried whether you come back tomorrow. You'll be benefited by it if you do. And it'll only be an hour tomorrow. Maybe that hasn't been true much during this series. Maybe. But there's one more thing I want to share. Remember we put two deaths up on the board? Do you know why the devil would have us not understand what happens when we die? So that we will never understand what happened when Jesus died. So that we will never understand 
the depths to which he was willing to go to save you, the apple of his eye. You see, Psalms 88 says, My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol, the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help. Like those forsaken among the dead. Do you remember we covered this last Sunday? How many were here for this? Like the slain who lie in the grave. Like those, notice what it says, underline it, whom you remember. What does it say? Which death did Jesus feel like he was dying? At this stage, was he dying the first? Would he be resurrected? But which one did he feel like he was dying? Was he forsaken of God? Did he feel like he was forsaken of God? Would he be resurrected? Did he feel like he would be resurrected? He felt as if he was going in the grave saying goodbye to life forever. And this is the great glorious truth of what makes Calvary so effective. Because we begin to sense how self-abandoning God is that the reason that he who believes in him will never die the second death is because Jesus already has. Are you hearing me? But what did it mean for him to be willing to go through with that when faced with the options of heaven or you and me? It required a God who would say that heaven is not a place he desires to be if you could not be there. It required a God who loved you so much that when faced between saving himself at your eternal loss or saving you at his eternal loss, it took a God who loved this race so much that he would say, I will save humanity at any cost to myself. And he bowed his head and he died. You see, you can believe that Calvary was just about what he suffered physically. And how much of his love will you see there? If he suffered this much, how much love will you see? But if you begin to sense that Jesus felt like he was dying the second death, the lake of fire death, in which there is no resurrection, it is eternal, permanent, done. And even with faith, when faced with saying goodbye to life forever, that you were still the most important thing to him. That he would risk even his own eternal existence. If you could be there. That he would not die at that moment so you could spend eternity with him. He would go into eternal nothing. So that you could have his spot in heaven. Do you see the difference? And if you don't understand what really If you don't understand what the Bible means by those two types of death, you will never see the depth, the breadth, the height, and the length of how much the God of this universe passionately loves you. He has given up everything for you. My prayer is that in our heart, He will get everything back. Amen. How many would like to say, Lord... Thank you for being willing to die the equivalent of the second death for me.
Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, as we close this afternoon. Lord, I pray for this church. And I don't mean any specific denomination, Lord. I pray for the Christian church. Lord, we have had our hearts stirred today. We have sensed things that truly are spiritually fulfilling. Not milk, Lord, but meat. We've tasted of your love, God. And that's what fills our hunger. But Lord, today, we as a church, as Christians, are saying the wrong thing about you. Father, forgive us. Lord, I want to be the kind of Christian that remains faithful to you in the word. That remains faithful to the truth about your character. That remains faithful to its vindication. And who longs to proclaim to the world the truth about how much this world is truly loved. God, would you please take every one of our beliefs about you. We are closing the section, Lord, here in this series on spiritual fulfillment. But there are still so many wrong pictures about you that exist. Lord, will you take every one of those pictures? And Father, by the miracle of your grace, help us to see the truth. We're tired of the lies. Father, we want that relationship with you that is viable, that is alive, that is vibrant. Father, we want to see you as you truly are. We are tired of endless effort trying to have a relationship with someone we have the wrong picture of. Lord, may we come to know the truth. The truth about you. And may that truth truly set us free. In your precious name we pray all this. Amen. God bless you once again. I invite you to leave your questions in the basket. I will answer those tomorrow very briefly before we start. Tomorrow we will be moving into our final two areas. We'll spend a little bit of time on mental development. I want to give you that one secret that I was telling you about. And then we're going to move into what the Bible says about how we can experience financial freedom. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. See you tomorrow at 2.30.